3: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity
5: forever!
2: Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. It's been a very sombre week, I have to say, but uh, we've got some uh, uh, information from uh, voices from Gaza and uh, the West Bank for you this morning. We're going to go a little bit uh, towards the uh, environment with a a chat with acclaimed filmmaker Josh Fox, who's coming to Melbourne for an event on Wednesday at the Nova. And I've got a couple of double paths to that if someone wants to ring up about it. Uh, We're going to talk to uh, somebody from uh, uh, the Coolahan Gallery in uh, Brunswick. Uh, Nicola, who's the Nicola, who's the curator of the Mary Beck Summer Show uh, entitled "A Climate for Change. Kevin's back. He's not being very funny this week because he we both agreed that it wasn't a very funny week, but he's got lots of interesting things to say about the week. And uh, we're going to finish up with a chat with Don Sutherland about uh, the role uh, class played in the No Vote for the Voice. Uh, But uh, before we do, a couple of reminders. There's a couple of things happening. Uh, Today at uh, 10.30, uh, there's going to be a talk-up outside Peter Khalil, MP, Federal Labor uh, Member for Wills. That's 466 uh, Sydney Road in Cobourg. Uh, There's going to be a stand with uh, Palestine uh, speak-up. It's at uh, 10.30 and it's today. Uh, of course, uh, tomorrow there's going to be the big rally outside the S- State Library in support of Palestine at 12 p.m. There was a massive uh, rally in Federation Square last night. Of course, uh, there was already going to be a celebration of Palestine Day uh, uh, that was uh Already organised before the uh, events in earlier of October, um, and that was at seven. For uh, there was uh, at five thirty, there was a, a gathering, and then it went on at seven. There was a vigil. So it, and, it, and the pictures that are coming out are massive, massive rallies in support of Palestine. Um, there's a couple of things that you might want to put in your di- diary. There's uh, uh, the um, annual fundraising comedy debate, uh, the Green Left comedy debate, which is on uh, Friday the 10th of November, 6.30pm opening. Uh, the actual show starts at 8pm. It's at Fitzroy Town Hall and Tom Ballard is going to be the Master of Ceremonies. Uh, so get on to the website and get your tickets Uh, and the following day at 1pm there's a rally for renters 1pm saturday at the corner of smith and gertrude street in fitzroy that's the 11th of november but uh, now we'll kick off with some important messages
4: stand in solidarity with palestine this sunday
7: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
4: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war. Stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
7: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday.
4: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on
7: Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
4: on Melbourne
0: Cup Day, but without the cruelty, by saying Nup to the Cup. Join Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses and Ten Fingers on Tuesday, 7th of November, for fashions on the field at the Flemington Bowls Club from 11am. Live music, DJs, delicious food, lawn bowls, outlandish dress-ups and human races. Let's celebrate animals, not exploit them. Visit nuptothecup.org for tickets help us make the first Tuesday of November a party for the animals. Nup to the Cup is a 3CR supporter.
2: you're with annie on solidarity breakfast and uh on during this week there was a webinar coming out of england uh, put together by palestine solidarity campaign and Rabet. uh they were they're now called solidarity sessions standing with palestine gaza and beyond uh, and uh, on the podcast, I'll put the full uh, link to that uh, event because there were some very interesting discussions by a variety of people. But uh, the voices we're going to hear today are from Salim Hayishazi, who is an apartheid free policy coordinator of the Palestine BDS. Oh, no, actually, we're not going to hear from him. Uh, that is something that you will f- follow up by going to the link. He is a fascinating fellow. Uh, no, we're going to hear from uh, a fellow who is a lecturer who's actually in Gaza, who lives in Gaza, and uh, he is moving around with his family trying to escape the bombs. And he, left. he had to send a taped message so that people could hear from him for this event, which was held on Wednesday, UK time, Thursday, our time. And And it followed up with Sami Yurani, who's a Palestinian human rights defender, co-founder of Youth of Sumund. He is in the West Bank. And uh, what they're trying to get across is that this is actually not just about Gaza. It's about all of Palestine and Palestinian survival.
8: Hi, Um, my name is Haider Eid, and I am a professor of uh, Cultural Studies and Literature at al University in Gaza. Um, I don't want to tell everything about you know, my personal experience, which is terrible, but uh, just uh, to give you an idea about what we've been going through. I mean, um, on the third day of the massacre, of the ongoing genocide taking place in Gaza by apartheid Israel, um, we were asked to leave our neighborhood, but because it was late during the day, I stayed with my family. Of course, two daughters and a wife. We stayed with the with the neighbor all night long. the The, the Israelis uh, bombarded the whole neighborhood until they flattened it to the ground. Um, in the morning, we found out that uh, my, my our uh, residential tower was uh, still standing miraculously, but uh, the, all the flats are uninhabitable, uh, impossible to live there. So I had to go and stay with my brother in the north, north of uh, Gaza City. I stayed there for two days after which Israel warned the people of Gaza City and the north. We are talking about 1.1 million people to head south uh which we did actually after more than three warnings because we understood that they were going to start their ground invasion and commit war crimes and crimes against humanity against our innocent people Uh, we headed towards the south and i'm staying right now in the in the south the city of rafah Uh, The Israeli war crimes committed against our people in the Gaza Strip are unprecedented. What is happening right now is literally, literally a genocide based on the definition of genocide by the United Nations. um, It is a combination, in fact, of ethnic cleansing and genocide. Um, And now since Saturday, October the 7th, uh, 2023, uh, apartheid Israel has flattened neighborhoods, including mine, as I said, Rimal, destroyed vital bridges, roads, residential towers, and villas on top of their owners. Um, today in the morning, they uh, destroyed 24 residential towers, 24 residential towers in a Zahra city and uh, water and uh, electricity stations were also destroyed. Um, Internet connection uh, was cut off. And as a sequence, uh, more than two thirds of the population have been denied access to water and electricity. Uh, In fact, that was at the beginning of the massacre. Now, all the population has no access to water and electricity of course the children the sick and elderly are the first to be affected and uh, what do we want i mean it's very very simple i mean what we what we want is that the intervention the intervention of the international community Uh, we want an immediate end of the unfolding genocide a ceasefire a ceasefire but the United States of America and other European countries like Britain, uh, Spain, France, Italy, etc., are supporting the ongoing genocide. In fact, the United States of America has vetoed vetoed against a, U- a United Nations Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire. We want the protection of civilian lives and property, as is stipulated in international humanitarian law and international human rights law, it's, it, I mean, such as the 4th Geneva Convention. It is time to take governments to task, to ask governments to boycott apartheid Israel, divest from companies benefiting from the oppression of the Palestinian people, and impose sanctions against it. the same way the international community treated apartheid South Africa. Those who support Israel and support its genocide of the Palestinians of Gaza, I'm talking about the American president and uh, ministers, I'm talking about the British government, I'm talking about Western, colonial Western governments in general, they are aiding Israel in committing the most heinous crime against humanity.
3: Our next guest, uh, Sami, who's speaking to us from the West Bank.
1: Hi, Sami. How are you? And welcome. Thank you for joining us tonight. Sami
9: uh, is based in Masafariyatta, South Ebron um, which has uh, already been for a long time under intense attack from Israeli settlers and the military. This goes way beyond um, October 7th and beyond Gaza. So Sami, you are in Masafariyatta and
1: we would like to ask you what's been happening lately and especially in the past few weeks.
10: Uh, yes, good evening uh, everyone. Uh, yes, thank you for uh, hosting me and your panel tonight. Uh, can you hear me well first of all? Okay, Yes, great. we do. Great. Uh, First of all, really, I would like to I mean, to start with uh, really God bless all the martyrs and the kids who are uh, killed in Gaza with these uh, tons of uh, bombs that Israel is raining on our people in uh, in Gaza and uh, before everything we really hope this hypocrisy of the world and of the west that will end very soon toward the the palestinian rights and palestinians uh, living under occupation in uh, west bank in gaza really since the 7th of october uh, here in uh, in the area we are living in myself we are here since uh, decades are facing the ethnic cleansing by by israel by the occupation and uh, the process is, st- is still going on but what's the difference between all these uh, decades and today that it's uh, and these uh, days uh, that israel is claiming it's the war days or the war uh, it's in a war state the situation completely changed uh, that the settlers now, they are the one who are uh, rolling here, who are the one that giving uh, directly the orders and uh, they are now, after uh, Benigvir, decided to give the guns for, uh, uh, as they say, civilians, but they are giving them for the settlers to come and to start to attack Palestinian uh, villages. Uh, civ- yani, we talk about small villages, civilians who have uh, nothing uh, that the settlers start to come uh, into the villages, especially like uh, the village of Maghair Al-Abid when in the 10th of October, the settlers stormed the village and uh, they are claiming with having this kind of uh, soldier's dress and starting beating the village there—it's like a really small uh, family living there. They started beating them up very violently with the guns, and then threatening them to leave; otherwise, they will kill them. And then, uh, to uh, they, they run away. Then we talk about just, a you know, uh, I a few minutes ago, really, uh, the uh, Muhammad uh, Jabarin is 21 years old, and his father, the Israeli soldiers. Now, when we talk, we talk about soldiers—that they are the one who are. Settlers are dressing, dress of soldiers coming to the houses, starting to attack people. So now, Mohammed just tra- was transported to the hospital with the Palestinian ambulance. He had a very uh, big fracture and uh, injuries, he and his father, with no reason, because the soldier just break into the house and start beating them. This is uh, what's going on. Uh, as I said, it's not the first uh, attack or raid to the village or to the houses in Yatta. In this is since uh, the 7th of October. They started with this brutality behavior just to terrorize the people and to uh, to make the goals that they want to make. That This is the time, the perfect time that the settlers, are using this what, I say, what they call state war to, uh, you know, to do the crimes and the policies that they want to do. Like they started to jump out to uh, randomly and uh, crazily in a lot of land to build tents and steal more land in this, uh, in this period, in this time. They start the settlers uh, to, uh, to, to shoot and to, uh, to kill people and execute people. Like what happened to my cousin uh, Zakaria, Zakaria Adara, is 28 years old. Zakaria is from my village of Twani, he lives here. Uh, and uh, the settler just came out from Habat Ma'an outpost, which is very close to my village, which is about uh, 100 meters. They were attacking the houses, and then they walked. One settler walked with M16 towards Zakaria and shot him in the stomach without anything, without any thing happening. Just literally catch the gun and shot him. Zakaria was still in the ICU, and he was, uh, you know, he was shot with dom dom. It's also another uh, prohibited uh, type of. Uh, uh, Bullet that the Israeli settlers and soldiers are using right now. He was transported to the hospital and in the ICU, he's still in the ICU. And uh, because of the closures, like all the West Bank now under big closure by the Israeli uh, army and by the Israeli military, we are literally in a siege. So Zakaria was transported. He took half an hour to reach the hospital in a, in, in a civilian car because the ambulance was stopped by the Israeli soldiers, which is in the in the, in, in the entrance of the city of Yatta, which is we are very close to, which the, which the ambulance have to drive to come here. The, the ambulance was stopped, the, the ambulance people were uh, like the soldier took off their clothes to prevent them from reaching uh, here, so he was transported with literally very uh, very long way to reach the hospital and he bleeded so much until he reached the hospital and he needed 14 units of blood. All his blood was completely uh, out. And this is uh, what's going on uh, now. As I said, it's a literary siege. We have a lot of checkpoints. We have a lot of uh, crazy uh, shooting by the military that the Israeli military right now just using the uh, live shooting against any Palestinian without any kind of hesitating, just immediately. It's, this is the immediate act, act that they are doing. My family as well was uh, yeah, for, now, for example, I can't go up my house for 10 meters, otherwise the soldiers now they put a lot of tents around my house to keep everyone inside the house, to keep everyone inside the villages, to not move around, to not go at all. Uh, And when my dad, the settler, came with the soldiers as well to come inside the land, my dad went up there and they started attacking them and literally shooting toward them directly. Literally, no one of my family was killed or hurt, but they were beaten by the guns and by the end of the guns in their hands and their bodies. But luckily, they are still, uh, it wasn't so, uh, I would say, bad. I mean, it's literally not compared at all with what with what palestinians are living in 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 gaza but still the israel when it declared uh, the state of war it declared the state of war in all the palestinians in in gaza and in the 48 and also in the west bank like even now in palestinians even just quick thing about Uh, 48 uh, Palestinians also cannot make posts also here. Like now we got detained in checkpoints and everyone who is making posts in, in his phone, they start like with the threat of the gun to confiscate the phone and oblige the youth to open it. And who have any kind of uh, like uh, social media posts to, to raise awareness of the situation? He got grabbed from the car. He got literally beaten up and very violently. And then uh, take the key of his car and let him uh, in the road for hours. And then after like I don't know five six hours, the army come back and throw the keys. And then people can go back home or they got sent back to the place where they went out from.
3: Wow, Sammy. That's Really intense to hear that, and I think uh, as you've been saying, I mean, it seems like what you're saying is that, it, in a sense, I mean, uh, the the war is on the entire Palestinian people, and what's happening in Gaza is being used as a um, uh, while the world attention is on there, but obviously not not helping. At the same time, uh, settlers and the soldiers are really accelerating the um, land grabs and the violence in the West Bank. Um, it sounds like from what you were saying that this is happening all over the West Bank also and, and it's happening in Masafariyata, of course, again, it didn't start two weeks ago there. But can you say a little bit more about what you're hearing from other parts of the occupied West Bank?
10: Uh, now, like, like the movement between the uh, cities in the West Bank is completely paralyzed by the Israeli occupation. Uh, all the cities in the West Bank are under siege and under lockdown. All the entrances are uh, locked down. Uh, Israel, uh, since uh, the 7th of October, killed in the West Bank, 95 Palestinians and about 1,800 injuries are now in the hospitals. Uh, In the West Bank, as I said, it's mainly the the siege that they are trying to uh, paralyze literally the movement. There is a lot of uh, arrests. Uh, today, a 25 uh, years old Palestinian was arrested two days ago. was killed, uh, was dead. He, he died inside the Ufar prison without any uh, understanding of uh, what's the condition and how he died. We are assuming totally under the torture that the Israeli occupation authority is using now on the high level of violence they're uh, using against Palestinians. We have also two days ago another old, uh, elderly man who is 58 years old who, as as well, was. Uh, he he died inside the Israeli prisons without also any uh, explanation of how they died. So it's also the Palestinians who got arrested from the West Bank. They got uh, killed, they got murdered inside even the prisons. It's literally, uh, as I said before, what we are living in Masafariyatta, it's totally what every Palestinian are living now in different cities in West Bank. People have to find roads to, uh, to go out. People are uh, really living under very difficult uh, life situation. This is because uh, Israel announced the war in all the in all Palestinian in West Bank. This is briefly.
3: Thank you. And you described some of that before, you're a community organizer, um, I wondered if you could say something a little bit about uh, w- what are people in Masafariyata doing right now to, um, to protect themselves and to, pro- to combat Israeli violence and how can people that are listening uh, today keep up with the news uh, in Masafariyata and support your work?
10: Uh, it's a very important question. It uh, also brings us to the uh, to what Sarah said about, uh, especially the point of when we say about declaring war against uh, Palestinians, which is there is no really equality between uh, the two powers that we are talking about. Uh, we have Palestinians who are here, mainly civilians, have no weapons, have nothing to literally defend or shoot or you know, protect themselves in front of a huge military power that uh, starts with settlers with heavy guns with military with all this stuff backed up together against the palestinian who is alone living in here in his land to protect his land and this is the the face of this huge terrorism and this huge violence palestinians continue to decide to steadfast and uh, stand in their land to defend in their land to protect it it's a very big struggle this is existence is resistance is to protect the land, it's not enough. It is is—it uh, is the current situation also now, and for so, for so many years, even it's so difficult now, we have so many challenges, some families are scared, and they are looking for, for a place to go to be safe, you know, to, this is for the family, for the children. But also, the main, mainly, most of the people are remaining here in their land, despite all this terrorism, despite all the violence and the situation they are living uh, in and with, and even with the war, that everything, have been raised and became more crazy. Uh, the like the title is, يعني, here in Masafriyat it was like before. We will never leave. We will continue to defend and protect our land. But this is also have a lot of responsibilities also from the the world outside because with all what we live, we continue to face that also people are continuing to uh, say Israel has the right to defend itself. So the the like the. Uh, criminalization and the crimes of Israel raised every day against us. This is completely make us completely very angry and very upset and we literally uh, you know ask and demand from everyone from the free people around the world to continue to stand for the Palestinian cause to stand for Palestine and we were very proud to see with all what we are going through the huge demonstrations that was in the UK and in, in different countries in the world this is a very strength uh, message you know, was to us, was really giving us a lot of uh, support and we hope that it will continue to change this really uh, brutal way of the West, how they are dealing with the Palestinian cause to really stand for Palestine, stand for justice, stand for Palestinian people. And thank you.
4: Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday.
7: With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, It's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people.
4: Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack.
7: We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday.
4: Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza.
7: Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
2: You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, as I was uh, saying, that was a piece from a webinar that came out of the UK on Thursday, it was uh, part of the uh, Palestinian uh, Solidarity Campaign. Uh, and I will put the link to the fir- the larger uh, elements in that particular webinar because it went over an hour and it's, it's quite fascinating. Um, the uh, We're moving on to uh, Josh Fox. Josh Fox is an acclaimed filmmaker. He uh, is quite famous for his film... Uh, Gasland and uh, he is a filmmaker, theatre writer and director as well as an environmentalist and uh, he is going to be screening his film The Edge of Nature at Nova at 6.45 on Wednesday, November the 1st, that's next Wednesday and he will be there. Uh, and I've got a couple of double passes, so that if you want to give us a call on nine four one nine eight three seven seven, oh three nine four one nine eight three seven seven after the show within the la- in from nine to nine thirty, you may get one of those double passes uh, as a supporter of three CR and uh, progressive uh, positive futures. Uh, this is a little chat I had with. Uh, Josh, just last night, in fact. So here we go. This is Annie McLaughlin from 3CR. Oh, hey, how are you? Good. And
9: uh, thanks for uh, paying attention to this film.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Can I ask you first about your uh, entree into making uh, documentary filmmaking? Uh, I mean, you made a big uh, splash when you uh, made um, Gasland. Um, and my listeners would be quite pleased to know what it was that, um, uh, set this whole trajectory off for you.
9: Well, um, well, first of all, I should just say that, you know, I've been making theater and film since I was a young child. So, um, you know, Castland was my first documentary, but it wasn't my first foray into storytelling. It wasn't my first film, you know, it, um, and, you know, I, I, uh, brought, you know, 20 years of experience um, into making that movie. So even though it seemed like it was sort of, you know, a person who was just um, a guy living in the woods somewhere, you know, that, 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 um, you know, I, I have, I was already a a person who'd made quite a lot of, uh, you know, dramatic work. Um, It was, it was my first documentary because of the, the situation that a lot of people found themselves in, including a lot of people in Australia who were being invaded by the oil industry. Right. All of a sudden, this technique called fracking, uh, which, you know, we made sure that uh, the world knew all about fracking, um, was invading people in their backyards and in, and in areas where the oil industry had never come before. Um, and they were trying to push into urban areas, rural areas, suburban areas, wildlife areas, protected areas, every possible place that they thought that they could find fossil fuels. They were trying to push themselves into and you know as it shows in the film um my uh family's land the land that i grew up on my whole life um in the upper delaware river basin in pennsylvania which is the new york city watershed which is the water supply for 16 million people um they wanted to come there and despoil this beautiful pristine uh wildlife area this beautiful pristine forest and river and and wetlands and turn it into an oil and gas zone and that was quite disturbing to me so i and, and I, it was also clear to me that this was happening all across America. It was happening all across the world, but that there hadn't been a comparative study of what was happening and that nobody knew really what was going on with the industry. So I set out to find out, you know, um, what was uh, what was the truth about fracking? Um, and of course, the, the a big part of the story is that they offered my family, you know, a certain amount of money per acre and that that was amount to something like one hundred thousand dollars. With the promise of a lot more money after that, um, and so you know, a lot of people made made light of the fact, or, or made a lot out of the fact that we, you know, I, I, that there was this big offer, um, you know, for money, and that was was more important to me, was to make sure that the that nature stayed intact and that water was staying intact.
2: It's a very frightening thing, isn't it, to think that uh, people think that uh, a sum of money of this sort and the um... Multi, the the interests of uh, fossil fuel is greater than the protection of nature
9: well i mean what you just described is basically the entire history of western civilization you know climate change is not caused by oil and gas and coal emissions of course it is but that's just a consequence of the system of western uh conquest western civilization and colonialism Right. Uh, and and what the movie The Edge of Nature is about is essentially that we have uh, in Western civilization um, uh, treated nature and treated the planet as if it was only something for us to own, extract, to, to spoil uh, and, and treat as a resource and not treat as, as uh, the thing that keeps everything on the planet alive. Right. Um, so when you do that, you head into a lot of trouble. Right. You have problems um, that we are now seeing worldwide uh we're facing calamity because the colonial civilization um has been living out of balance and and now you see like you know i'm all day today i was investigating the floods um you know in, in new south wales those floods uh were caused by a huge amount of rain which is you know from climate change right But at the same time, 99% of the forest in this region was cut down, um, which means you have absolutely no protection against flooding, which is a forest, right? So if we think of nature as simply something to create wealth, um, yeah, you can make a lot of money. But we are at the end of that system now, right? If we continue to live like that worldwide, if Western civilization continues to be the model, um, then we're done for. And that'll be the greatest die off in the history of the planet. It, it, it will be a genocide of epic proportions. And we're in the process of committing that genocide um, as we continue to walk down that road.
2: It's quite willful too. I mean, it's, uh, you talk about the floods in uh, New South Wales, but uh, even within the um, the system that's been created, people are being having their dream homes in inverted commas built on flood plains And then when there are massive floods, there is no insurance policy that will cover that.
9: Well, as we're finding out, there really isn't any insurance policy for the planet Earth, right? I mean, insurance is is something that protects us inside of the capitalist system where um, we we, we stretch, you know, (laughs) to the limits, right? But there is no planet B. There is no way to fix a water supply. There is no way to fix the climate. There is no way to to, to um, make these things right again without actually doing that. So what's interesting to me and what is the focus of the film, The Edge of Nature, is that during COVID, during the first 10 months, nine months of COVID, during the lockdown period, um, was the only time in the history of Western civilization that we've actually reduced emissions and pollution enough to meet the col- the climate goals of the Paris uh, Climate Accords, right? That was the only time in the entire history of this civilization that we've actually reduced emissions. And now we've decided to just forget all of that and and run headlong into the opposite direction. In fact, emissions have gone up even faster. So there are lessons within that moment of what we call the anthropause, the time when when Western civilization stopped. I mean, I don't think it should be called the anthropause, because certainly... Western civilization and and, and industrial civilization shouldn't be the only definition of what is a human, right? There's a lot of humans that don't cause climate change. But the bottom line is that, um, you know, that that system stopped and it gave the earth a breath. And it was a time for many people, um, uh, you know, to reconnect. It was a time of great grief. We were suffering huge losses, lots and lots of people were dying. Um, but we were also connecting with the way the, the natural systems of the Earth work, right? We could see the stars. Um, we could see the blue sky. Um, natural ecosystems rebounded. Um, and I think that there is a sort of cellular memory of that moment uh, when the Earth um, was allowed to breathe again for a moment. Um, and In fact, it's been demonstrated, you know, in Wuhan, China, which uh, in the early stages of the disease, 3,200 people died of COVID. But it was estimated by Stanford University that in the same time period, um, the downturn in industrial pollution actually saved the lives of 40 to 70,000 people, wow. um, which bears the question, you know, what is the real pandemic? Is it COVID <laughs> or is it the fossil fuels that we love to burn and choke on? And the truth of the matter is fossil fuels, pollution from fossil fuels, kills 10 million people every single year. 10 million people every year die from fossil fuels that is far more higher than the death toll of COVID, and it's every year, every year. So we're in the midst of a pandemic. Um, the pandemic is fossil fuels.
2: Well, it leads me to this question that uh, I find really fascinating, which is the, way, the human capacity to live in an imagined world. And um, it sets up a whole uh, set of paradigms which are easily uh, punctured and were punctured in the West by the pandemic. Uh, When you made a film like uh, The Edge of Nature, you're looking at a sensory and interactive uh, world of nature that humans in the West generally have forgotten that, that they are actually a part of.
9: I think that's a big part of the film, right? Why is this called the edge of nature? Well, nature as a concept in the, in the English language, the word nature means um, everything on the planet, all the systems of plants and animals. And in English, in the dictionary, it says as opposed to humans. <laughs> so nature is, not just, nature is not just separate from us, but it's opposed to us, right? Uh, yeah. So we, in the very, the word nature only exists to separate us from the land. In a lot of uh, other cultures, they don't have this word. They just have the word land, right? So nature is like this opposite, this thing that's outside of us. And because it's outside of us, we don't belong in, uh, to it. It's almost as if English has made us into aliens, right, that are inhabiting this planet but aren't a part of it. And that's that's hugely a folly, right? We are a part of nature. We have to understand that the only way out of this crisis is to become to, to integrate with nature and to live in balance with nature. And, um, you know, that's a, a primary discovery within the film, um, you know, because what I do, I'm healing myself from long COVID in the film. And the way I do that is to go into the forest and live in a one-room cabin with no electricity and no cell phone signal uh, for those nine months. And that's what the course of the film is.
2: It, it's a rediscovery yourself, isn't it?
9: Well, it's a, it's a rediscovery, not just of self, but of also of the planet, right? Like yeah. we focus a lot when we talk about healing, we focus on ourselves, right? But we can't heal ourselves without healing the planet. And we can't heal the planet without healing ourselves. Like it's a ridiculous thought that we would strap on, you know, spandex, petroleum-based yoga pants and drive an SUV a half an hour to a strip mall, take a yoga class, drive back home then wash those yoga pants, which creates micro, micro going down into the, into the ocean and think, oh, well, I'm healing myself. This is ridiculous. We absolutely have to dedicate ourselves to healing the planet, right? The, the natural ecosystems need to be rebuilt and rewilded, but that's our job, right? That's what humans do, okay? Humans are the species that know how to be gardeners. Humans are the species that know how to manage an ecosystem that ha- that can grow biodiversity, that can spot an invasive species from a from a native one. Human beings have that knowledge. No other no other animal on this planet knows how to do that. Right. That's our job. Our job is to take care of nature. Nature doesn't doesn't work well without us. It gets overgrown. Things go wrong. You know. So with we have to understand that if we're going to heal ourselves, you got to go out there and, and replant the forest. You don't you don't um, Separate yourself in the process and say, Well, I'll meditate and I'll do all of this sort of things to heal myself. Okay, well, that's part of it. But the best meditation is when you're replanting the forest. The best healing is when you're re uh, establishing um, the ecosystems of the planet.
2: So you're in Australia at the moment, and uh, we're lucky enough to have yeah. you come to the NOVA on uh, Wednesday, the 1st of November, and you're going to be there for the screening.
9: Absolutely. I'm very excited. Um, You know, I love coming to Australia. Uh, Gasland was a big hit here. We toured all over the place. It really helped to push along the -the lock-the-gate campaign, the anti-fracking campaigns. And and I I feel very proud of my relationship with the extraordinary activists that are here. And, um, you know, the last three films that I've made were big in the United States, but somehow didn't get themselves down here quite as as, uh, vividly. So I'm really hoping that this film, The Edge of Nature, um gets picked up in Australia, and and a lot of people can see it because I do think that it it really is resonant here as well.
2: Thank you very much for talking to me, and hopefully I'll see you on that Wednesday.
9: Oh yeah, please say hello. Um, yeah. I'll I'll be there November November first. Can't wait.
2: Yeah, and that was uh, Josh Fox, uh, "The Edge of Nature." It's on at November, when, uh, at the Nova on Wednesday, uh, and that's November the first. It's six forty-five. The filmmaker is going to be in attendance, and if you give me a call, uh, you can um, potentially get a double pass. And that's nine four one nine eight three seven seven. And you need to do that after nine between 9.30 this morning because I'm not hanging around. I've been here a long time. Uh, Now we're moving right along and we're going on into the positive realms. Uh, In the studio, we've got Nicola Bryant. How are you, Nicola? Hi, Annie. Oh, (laughs) I let the side down. I didn't put you on.
0: Thanks, Annie. I'm quite well. Thank you so much for having me here today.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm quite excited to talk about this because uh, it's Mary Beck's uh, summer show, A Climate of Change. So how did this all happen?
0: Yeah, so um, the Coonahan Gallery is Marybeck City Council's free public gallery and every year we run the Marybeck Summer Show, which is an annual community exhibition where we invite local artists who live, work or study or base their arts practice in the city of Marybeck to contribute a work that relates to an exhibition theme. And so this year's exhibition theme is a climate for change, as you've just mentioned. And um, the theme was selected um, in part because of um, Beck City Council's commitment to environmental justice, um, but also because we thought that the theme had this capacity to um, really inspire artists to um, think about their work in terms of how it might contribute to social change. Um, And it has this element of hope, which we thought um, was something that uh, would really bring artists together in this um, exhibition, which is really a celebration of Marybeck City Council's creative community. So, um, yeah, that was the, the origin for the theme this year. You, you got a lot of applications, didn't you? That's right, Solutions. yeah. So this year we had over 100 um, uh, submissions for the Marybeck Summer Show. So this is our biggest Marybeck Summer Show yet. Um, and as ever, the contributions to the exhibition really have that s- progressive spirit that Mary Beck is known for, and for which the Coonaghan Gallery is known for as well that sense of um, activism, of uh, fighting for social change, for being committed to um, creativity and the. the um, well, it's
2: about, it's about the power of art, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, earlier in the show, I was playing a piece from a webinar about what's going on in uh, Palestine. Uh, one of the other speakers was a, a, a playwright, and he actually has a story in there where he says that he was uh, had uh, he was signing uh, copies of things at the end of the uh, play and there was a woman there who opened up her bag and she had an Israeli flag in the bag and he was really a bit worried and then she said that she had come to this play and she was going to disrupt it but because she watched the play and it had an effect on her and she understood what was going on that uh, she, she wanted to talk to him and didn't do it and it was about the power of art. And this is why I bring it back. And and that's why he told the story. And this is the same with this exhibition, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. I would say that artists are always at the forefront of um, inclusivity and um, engaging with issues in a deeply thoughtful way. Um, and absolutely, art has a transformative power where you can come in from whatever experience you might have and engage with what's in the space. Um, and viewers see that and they, they engage with that in a way that um, prompts them to think about their own position in relation to the world. Um, and I think the Mary Beck Summer Show does this as well with you know, as I mentioned, over a hundred works on display. There are so many different responses to the exhibition theme. Um, you know, artists are thinking about their own impact on um, climate change and then they're also thinking about um, colonialism in Australia. They're thinking about, um, you know, gender diversity. There's just so many different responses Responses to this exhibition theme that I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, audiences can come in and ex- experience that that um, reflection on who they are and what they're doing here.
2: Yeah, it's it's qu- it's quite fantastic. I I really do think it's fantastic. Um, you're the curator now. The curator has this uh, fantastic job, uh, but it's a challenge to actually bring out the uh, fantastic objects for viewing. So tell us how you approach that.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question because um, with over 100 works in the show, there is such a range of responses to the theme. Um, And so the role of the curator is really to see what relationships are springing up between the artworks and then um, thinking how they can be grouped in a way that... um, will invite the viewer to be able to access what some of these artists are trying to say through their work. Um, But knowing that the Beck Summer Show has, um, you know, it's a celebration of the community, so it's also a playful exhibition. So making sure that there are pockets in the exhibition where um, a viewer might be surprised or um, they can go through different zones where um, they might be invited to be more deep sort of deeply contemplative and take moments to um sit with the ideas in the space and then other moments where they might be delighted or surprised or be able to move spatially um through the gallery and really explore uh, was the there works. was
2: there a lot of uh, different types of uh uh formats used or materials used
0: yes yeah, certainly so um we have paintings, we have prints on paper, sculptures, video, installation, whatever kind of artwork you can imagine. We have it in the beck Summer Show, certainly.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. And you're well known for uh, having uh, not just the exhibition, but you sometimes tie them up with uh, uh, talks and stuff like that don't you is does that happen this time
0: yeah um so we have um the uh, merry back summer show story time this year so this is really um for children so they can come along and um it's a partnership with the coonahan gallery and brunswick library where um yeah so children can come in and there will be music and they can um Take part in a story time that focuses on books with an emphasis on uh, landscape or climate or um, activism, because we know that children care as well about what's going on in the world. And so this is a really um, playful and inclusive way for children to engage with the exhibition and with books and with learning and. Yeah, with play.
2: And there is a uh, prizes attached to some of this, isn't there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are the Coonaghan Gallery. We're named after Noel Coonaghan.
2: The great Noel Coonaghan.
0: <laughs> exactly. Socialist, um, artist, activist. And um, so we have the Noel Coonaghan Commemorative Art Award, which um, celebrates Noel Coonaghan's legacy, Um The award is for innovation in contemporary art practice, as well as celebrating an artist who has a strong commitment um, to political and environmental ideas. And so the judges for this award are myself, um, but we also have Amelia Winata, who is a curator-in-residence at Gertrude Contemporary and also the founding editor of Memory Review, um, and we also have Dr. Paola Bala, who's a Wemba Wemba and Gunjit Mara woman and artist and curator, writer and academic. So the three of us will have the difficult challenge of um, judging the Noel Coonahan Commemorative Art Award. And um, we also have a, a highly commended award this year as well. Um,
2: and there's a special, pri- a smaller prize for people who are, uh, for the particular theme.
0: That's right. So this is the first year we've introduced a Climate for Change Award um, and this will be judged by the Zero Carbon Marybeck team of Marybeck City Council. And it's really focusing on an artist who has paid particular attention to um, the environmental justice component of what the exhibition theme might invite. Um, And so for that award, they will receive a $250 series voucher.
2: And there's also – because the overall price is $3,000, which is, you know, that's a nice chunk. But there's another nice chunk, which is the – uh, public award, you know, like p- That's right. public
0: choice. Yeah, the People's, People's choice, choice Award. Um, so that award is voted by visitors of the Marybeck Summer Show and um, the recipient of that award receives a $1,000, which is generously sponsored by the Sydney Road Brunswick Association. Um, and it's really voted by the people. So uh, visitors can come into the gallery and they can explore the exhibition uh, and vote for their favourite Artist, And then at the end of the exhibition, after um, we've counted all the votes, we'll announce the recipient of that award in our social media and e-news and on the website.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's great. So tell us the dates.
0: Yeah, so the exhibition opens uh, next Saturday, the 4th of November at 2pm. And the exhibition runs right through until um, Saturday, the 9th of December, closes at 5pm. um I always have this joke in my mind that it's the Maryback Summer Show and we look forward to it so much that we tend to open it in spring, in November. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and of course, it's at the uh, um, Coonahan Gallery is at the Brunswick uh, Town Hall and you can catch the tram if you're not uh, mobile with a, uh, a car and or a bike uh, and it's on Sydney Road.
0: Thank you so much, Annie.
2: Yeah, fantastic stuff. Keep up the good work.
7: OK, this is a uh, logging operation. Any person found within this coop is offending. Can they please leave? You're n- allowed no closer than the breach down the track there. Any person that's found in the coop will be arrested and charged. <laughs> I direct that you all leave now.
4: Gecko's turning 30 and we're having a party. The Goongra Environment Centre has been fighting to protect East Gippsland's forest since 1993 and we want a party with you. There'll be music, performances, food, drink, old friends and new friends. What better way to celebrate the end of native forest logging in Victoria? From December 1st to the 3rd in Goongra, East Gippsland. To find out more, go to (laughs) gecko.org.au.
1: Ooh, Gecko, 30 years, fighting for forests. Get down to the party.
4: Celebrate with us. A 3CR supporter.
5: A week solidarity, Bricky Team listener, went, even though I've missed the past couple of weeks with a nasty bloody cold, I'm calling it a cold because I had a flu injection this season, so if it wasn't a cold, then the flu injection worked a treat even though it is impossible not to comment on the events of the past fortnight, and only once or twice in the now 40 years of the week that was have I decided the events make satire impossible, that there is nothing to laugh about, even our usual bad jokes. The week of the Tianmin Square Massacre was one example, and the same applies to the events of this past two or three weeks. There is a common thread the victimization of displaced peoples, rendered landless by the colonists and land grabbers and their affluent first world backers. Oh, we could have set up a no voter explaining she, he was not a racist, but the racism let loose by the no campaign was too serious. I'm gonna tell two stories going back a long way. About 40 years ago, I was in Lebanon as a guest of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine visited refugee camps where the displaced explained they had lots of kids despite their squalid conditions because we need the next generation of freedom fighters. On a Sunday afternoon, we were taken south to the Zion border where we met young men fighting for that freedom. One, a final year med student at Arman University, spending his summer vac fighting for the Palestinian cause, and then going back to Jordan to complete his studies if he survived the summer that was their life many of the refugees were the generation thrown out by the western powers all wanting nothing more than to return to their ancestral land and homes they were and have never been allowed back apart from those smiling kids who happily posed for photos 40 years later presumably being this generation of freedom fighters Nothing has changed. The dispossessed still bombed, jailed, killed, homes demolished, crops destroyed by so-called settlers, lives controlled by the trained killers of an illegal occupying power supported by world capital. Sure, the attack on Zion by Hamas was violent. Yet the Palestinian landless have suffered violence for at least 75 years. The capitalist world, including our government and, of course, Zion, declares Zion has a right to defend itself. But if the victims of colonization and daily oppressive colonization resist, they are further victimized, bombed, maimed and killed, homes demolished and declared militants or terrorists, when the real terrorism has been practiced by Zion governments and Zion-trained killers for seven and a half decades. As we know, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. The supporters of Zion terrorism maintain the mantra of the two-state solution, a total impossibility as Zion settlements squeeze the ejected into ever-decreasing space. And there is little chance of those illegal settlers being told to vacate the land they steal, Thus, difficult as it will be, the only logical solution is a multiracial, non-religious state not based on one race or one religion, conceding, of course, that Palestinians are also Semitic people. And it is important to iterate that the enemy is Zionism, a racist philosophy, and not Jewish people. Now, let me go back even further to when I was living in an anti-Vietnam War community called DMZ, Demilitarized Zone, a shop in Chapel Street, Paran, where four of us lived permanently and who knows how many people were there on any given night. Toward the end of its life, Rod Marks moved in with us, a full-blooded Indigenous bloke, and on the Saturday night between Christmas and New Year, he came out of the pub across the road, 10 o'clock closing in those days, where coppers were waiting and, no surprise, they arrested just one person. No need to guess who. Rod rang us next morning to bail him out, but could we bring a doctor, because he had been bashed by the coppers, who, as is their habit and Paran Police Station was infamous, charged him with assaulting them. Being that time of year, we couldn't find any of the friendly left-leaning doctors we knew, but Rolf, a DMZ regular visitor, rang a doctor he knew, who said he would meet us at the police station. Rolf said he had no idea of the doctor's politics." We, um, we waited and waited and waited and finally rang the doctor to ask where he was. Oh, it's all right, he said. I rang Paran Police Station and asked if they had someone who'd been bashed, and they said no. Now, we had an idea of his politics. What universe was he living in? We bailed Rod out, took photographs of his injuries, which we presented when, we fronted the, when he fronted the beak, and he beat the rap. I raise that because like nothing changing for the Palestinians over those 40 years, nothing has changed for Indigenous Australians after all these years as well. Just last week, a teenager on remand and never found guilty of any crime died in an adult prison cell. Two days ago, Queensland police shot and killed another black man. In both cases, no one will face the consequences, but if anyone were charged, he, stroke she, would be found not guilty by an all-white jury. Yet in 1988, after the huge Black March and the events surrounding the bicentennial celebrations, I left Sydney feeling positive about the future of Indigenous relations, clearly misplaced. Now, when the first people of this land invite the colonial power to recognise them and their thousands of years' relationship to the land, whose flora and fauna capitalism is rapidly destroying, asked to be allowed to make decisions for themselves, 60% said no. And while there was a progressive no vote, which I can understand and respect, that would have been a very small percentage of the vote. Despite denials, there was but one conclusion, racism. The misinformation, disinformation, outright lies, which even told us the majority of Aboriginal people themselves opposed being recognised. The vote in Indigenous communities exposed that lie. Too late, of course. And the slogan, if you don't know, vote no, was, as the statement released by some years proponents this week made clear, a call to public ignorance. But then the vote itself was a testament to ignorance. At the door as I entered the polling station was a sign we acknowledge the Rogery people, etc. And I thought, if the polls are correct, non-Indigenous Australia was about not to recognise uh, all Indigenous people. On a positive note, of course, millions did vote yes. And none of this will prevent the Palestinian people and our Indigenous people and those who support them continuing the struggle to right the wrongs of their respective and the terrible consequences of their respective dispossessions. As usual, the struggle goes on, and we will get back to the usual week that was next week. But oh, I can't help myself. Mr. No, Constable No, Constable Peter Duffer, whose political strategy is oppose everything the government does, which we often do as well, but for different reasons, this week supported the government in sending train killers and their killing machines to protect Zion from the Gaza non-land, non-people terrorists. More brownie points while Big Supremo Anthony, all being Uzi, was licking U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world supremo Joe Biden capital's boots. While the U.S. of has sent heaps of train killers and train-killing machines, which have been shooting down Hamas penny bangers, while warning countries not to interfere or widen the conflict. Okay, I got all that off my chest, my cold, infected chest. Till next week, good morning.
2: And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, And we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? Uh,
6: G'day, Annie. to all of your listeners.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, It's been a very depressing few weeks, I'll have to say, but uh, uh, you've got a a very interesting take on the no vote. Uh, I mean, I know you're an active supporter of the yes vote, but uh, you've uh, been contemplating what's happened. Um, I was wondering if you'd like to share a few of your thoughts with uh, my listeners. Yes, well, there's
6: many things that can be said about the result, and I agree with what I've just listened to um, from Kevin, I agree with the way he's approached it, uh, along with um, several others who have uh, correctly pointed out that um, there has been an honest reckoning mention of it all that is worth. and tall straight on to Isle of the ran the No campaign, or funded it, and funded it. Now, the No campaign, the coordinating centre to that was the Centre for Independent Studies, which is a right-wing think tank. It's for, I'm not going to say much more about this. I'm just saying let's explore all this and understand this from the point of view of those who want to build a winning strategy in the future. Uh
2: what you're really saying is that uh, these elements, these currents that run through the Australian politic, this right-wing current has, uh, uh, that came out in full force during the Voice campaign uh, is something that needs to be uh, recognised and uh, clear strategies have to be put in place to deflect their power. Yeah, well, the
6: power behind the No campaign didn't come out. They kept themselves hidden, but they they were able to use key figures from who have history in the Centre for Independent uh, Studies, and were now active in other organisations that were whose messaging was able to reach a big majority of the of the population. Now, so for example, on the board. Of the Centre for Independent Studies, are extremely wealthy people from corporations like Macquarie Group.
2: Mm, Yeah.
6: At least three. At least three uh, ex senior executives in Macquarie Group. Three Hills,
1: the
6: international law firm that is the prime legal architect in the writing of the anti-working class laws in our industrial relations laws, like the Fair Work Act. You could go on, there are many others. Caltex Australia, JP Morgan Australia, West Farmers, ResMed. Uh, The American Chamber of Commerce is there.
2: Oh my God.
6: The University of Tasmania is there. Um, CSL, the Commonwealth Serum, what used to be called the Commonwealth Serum Laboratories is there now a private corporation, yeah. and Australian oil shale holdings. So oh,
2: my it. God, all the evil empires there.
6: Uh, I'm, I'm not providing any rich detail, but I'm just pointing towards that this, the, the, the funders and the coordinators and the, if you like, the behind-the-scenes shapers of what the No campaign ended up doing are, are elitist in their essence. And they are corporate elitist, and they will line up with the major corporations who assisted the Yes campaign, who assisted the Yes campaign in opposing workers' rights in, for example, the Closing Loopholes Bill.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, this is interesting because all they're doing is taking it out of the American uh, right-wing uh, playbook, which uh, uh using these uh, think tanks in inverted commas as uh, the suit for their uh, attack.
6: Yes, yes. And there's an interaction and, and it's a very powerful one and we need to be talking about it a lot more. Now, the other aspect of the class um, uh, dimensions of this result is that and we have to face up to this that the majority of the working class at just above median wage levels and below voted no and they did so with a minority of them as active racists but in general also either accepting and even expressing racist views to the extent that they talk about them. Now this is a really big issue for progressives and anyone to the left of being progressives like Now are you
2: saying these are the people who say we won the war so just uh, suck it up or are you talking about the people who uh, feel that uh, they're being undermined and uh, they want to be uh, above, uh, one step above um, indigenous people?
6: I'm talking about the majority of the uh, the majority of the working class, which itself is a majority of the population. But the majority of the working class who have taken on. And and to one degree of intensity or another, uh, accept a ruling class value which is to be divided on the basis of race.
2: Ah, uh, well, I'll, well I'll put. Come, that was very well put of you.
6: I'll come. I'll come back to that in a minute. Now, uh, the irony in all this is that in our working class history, there have been several moments where the low income working class have done really wonderful things in solidarity with Aboriginal people who have been in struggle. Now, over that history, and that includes, for example, the solidarity of the Sheep Metal Workers' Union with the uh, the first National Manifesto of Aboriginal organisations in 1938 in printing the document so that it could be distributed more widely, especially among the working class. That's just one
1: example. You well,
2: one to... one of the examples was the um, business about asbestos. So I don't know if this has been lost to people's memory, but uh, Indigenous people were used to mine asbestos uh, and uh, because for some reason or other, apparently they were immune to being killed by it. And uh, that was one of the... Uh, Areas that uh, the uh, campaign against asbestos uh, unearthed.
6: Yes. And the um, the important thing there is that, that the, any idea that it must be naturally so slow, slow, that uh, middle and low income working class Australians would tend to be racist is wrong. Yeah, no, it, it's it is. It's contested terrain, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And I think the bit, this has enormous implications for strategy. I think the other... You see, what we've got to, what we've got to understand is that the those who voted no, working-class people, infected in one way or another so that their own consciousness uh, was influenced by racist ideas, um, is capable of being turned around so that they are not um, and they get something and they, there is something they get right in my observation and i've discussed this with a lot of people now those who voted no and who were visibly on lower incomes uh, were not really willing to talk they were sullen and resentful but to the extent you get into to talk, they were heartily suspicious of the elites, as they defined them, running the Yes campaign. And there is an element of truth in that when you, when you know that the Yes campaign was heavily funded by major corporations who, as they say, will oppose workers' rights who don't like the right to strike.
2: Yeah, yeah, but interestingly enough, the No campaign was financed by the same groups.
6: Yeah. uh, uh, Not exclusively, but yes. Yes. Now, that means that what uh, middle and low-income working-class people are dealing with is, of course, the priority struggle for their material day-to-day living. And Uh, that is a harsh struggle and getting harsher. And in that context, being asked to be generous by people who have not shown much generosity to to them is a big problem. (laughs) In other words, there Mm. were messaging problems Mm. in the Yes campaign to... The working class. The second big feature of our working class at that in those lower incomes is, of course, they're not in unions. Twelve percent of workers in unions, and so they sense and feel an alienation of the from the decision making. Process that goes on in Australian society. They're alienated from the power, from power, and they're right about it. That's 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 actually true.
2: Well, they are right,
6: and and so in any evolution of the next stage of strategy to win battles in solidarity with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, and in winning. The broader fights that the working class needs to win, that spin off, as and provide positive momentum for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander struggles, that interaction is incredibly important in the future. Which sort of, so I think this sort of class dimension of the result has not been satisfactorily discussed so far and yet it's essential. And I'll say this somewhat provocatively. I'm not convinced that a lot of the people that I know who were dead serious, solid activists in the Yes campaign are really good at talking with relatively impoverished white fellow workers Mm. and their
2: I think you're right. I think this is, uh, I'm glad you're having this conversation.
6: And that has to change. It is essential it changes for general struggles of the working class as well as the particular anti racist dimension of struggles uh, being generated by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and their
2: organisations. So what you're really saying is that it exposes the incredibly uh, unequal society that we've created um, and that uh, uh, when it comes to working class uh, struggles, that uh, these uh, risks uh, need to be examined to get a more positive outcome in workers' struggles at the uh, coalface, right? To use a, a coalface yeah. we have to change that word don't we
6: um, yes we do uh, yeah, yeah, that's where I'm, that's where I'm heading and I'm, I, I might I'm, in a sense I'm putting forward what I'm saying in an exploratory way I'm convinced that the basic concept is must be worked out and that is that you know, what is what are the class dimensions of this uh, honest reckoning? Uh, but the detail of it, I'm happy to you know learn about and discuss further, and we've got to dig into that because it has implications on three at three levels for future strategy. I leave aside because we haven't got the time, but I think there were there was some a couple of serious fault lines in the S strategy, uh, which were uh, not, you, you could not um, in a sense you could not find in the no campaign, actually. Um, but that's, that's to do with how you understand the preparation for a major campaign and things like that, which I won't, I won't go into in great detail. But the three, the, there are three ways in which the strategy issue for the future is important, keeping in mind that we have a foundation to build a, an effective strategy. The first one is purely parliamentary, and I'll deal with briefly. Dutton is clearly not going to fuss too much about the Coalition's loss of the Teal seats. He believes that the LNP recovery to parliamentary power can be found in the Labor and Greens' vulnerability in the lower income out of Western suburbs and regional seats. And we should not... Assume that the, if you like, the sort of system of government and so on, can shield us from that Trumpian style strategy. All right, we've got. Yeah, to, yeah, um, yeah,
2: yeah, no, That's right. It's it's well spotted and well, uh, well um, framed. What you just said. Yep. Yeah.
6: Now the second aspect of it is. Um, you know, what will be the focal points for struggles that are of major significance to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Uh, and they are going to chart that out for us, but they will hinge around things like closing the gap, the treaty, but also deaths in custody. Yeah, anymore. deaths in
2: custody. I mean, and as as um, Lydia Thorpe pointed out in a wry sort of a way, that <clears throat> getting rid of the hang points... Uh, in uh, prisons won't just help black fellas it will help white fellas as well, she said
6: <laughs> well i think i think that's, that's a useful starting point, but I think the bigger point about the death deaths and custody is its recommendations remain a relevant program mm. uh, for those who wish to work in solidarity with uh, Aboriginal and tra- Torres Strait Islander people and their organisations. It's a platform, if you like, political platform, almost.
2: Yeah, because it, the thing about it is you can't understand the resistance uh, over the practical uh, remelioration of these uh, sites. Why can't they just do it? Because it's so odd. But
6: that will, I think we to get a lot from... Um, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the weeks and months ahead about what you know, the focal points will be and we have to pay attention and listen and learn from that. The the um, Keep in mind that, uh, just by the way, with the death and custody report, I think one of the co-authors of that um, with the judge responsible for the final production of that document was Pat Dodson.
2: Yeah, yeah. Hmm.
6: So the, the other thing is truth-telling. Now, my hunch is that from the point of view of the thousands of new activists for yes, the big question for them is what they can do to maintain the heavier lifting they committed to, to maintain that with a focus on reaching and discussing and learning about the truth of our history especially the attempt to destroy Aboriginality in Australia.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's Uh, a good point.
6: The test, if you like, of how fair dinkum, that new band of activists, thousands of them, Mm. uh, can maintain that heavy lifting, go to another notch or two higher and take truth learning into... Uh, a sensitive relationship with uh, the low income working class
2: we have to finish there, that's a good point to finish, I know you've got a thousand other things to say, very good and uh, uh, reflective uh, comments this week, uh, thank you very much for spending time with us Don
6: good on you Annie and the best wishes to everybody the struggle, la lota continua <laughs>
2: yeah. have a good day All the best. Bye for now. Yeah, that was very interesting. Good on Don. Um, That's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. We uh, heard some voices from Gaza and West Bank. We... uh to, uh, had a chat with uh, filmmaker Josh uh, an activist, uh, Josh Fox. If you want to go to a, a, a screening of his film The Edge of Dark uh, <laughs> The Edge of Nature uh, Nova Wednesday, November the 1st, 645 and uh, the filmmaker will be there. then you can give us a call on uh, the 3, 3CR number. I'll find it before I let's see where it is. I seem to have lost it. It's uh, uh, 94198377. Uh, After that, we uh, heard from Nicola Bryant from the Coonan and Gallery uh, Climate for Change exhibition. Uh, November the 4th, it starts, goes till the 9th. Uh, This is the week that was, and then dawn. Uh, Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and we'll go out with Dolly Rott's A desperate SOS, a perfect ending for this week.